Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I'm here with my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, NHL 94 playoff champion. (laughs) Oh, yes. And the reason that you are mentioning that odd piece is because in this episode of our season on the films of 1996, we're talking about Jason's pick. Jason, what did you pick? I picked Swingers, the first film written by Jon Favreau and starring Favs and Vince Vaughn and directed by Doug Lyman, a filmmaker we both still like and uh, think um, is a little underrated, I think, overall. Yeah, maybe. Uh, he's uh, <laughs> uneven, let's say. We'll, we'll probably talk more about that later. But Yeah, that's uh, somewhat of, somewhat of uh, what's fascinating about him. Yeah, uh, no, that's fair. That's fair. But uh, Swingers was his debut. So, you know, this could have been a... Uh, Not true, Josh. Our- not true. Was it not? He made a film in 1994 called Getting In about, uh, I think it had like Doug Ray Scott or something. And uh, basically it was about uh, this dude who wants to get into medical school and like three people uh, are ahead of him to get in. And he finds convenient ways to have them have accidents. Uh, <laughs> Is so, this a comedy? Yeah, I think it's like one of those dead man on campus type style movies or whatnot. So, oh, wow. But this is definitely the movie that propelled him to stardom. Yeah, I was not aware of that other movie. That's a a failure on my part in terms of the research. So I'm glad you stepped in on that. Have you seen that movie? No, but you you know, we love being completists here at Awesome Movie Year. So don't be surprised if it comes up on my Letterboxd one of these days, which quick plug, go for Jason. Follow me on Letterboxd. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Follow me on Letterboxd, too, at Signal Bleed. Letterboxd is great. So Swingers, though, was uh, certainly, like you said, a breakout for Doug Lyman, a breakout for Vince Vaughn and for Jon Favreau, uh, who wrote it as well as starred in it. It uh, was a decent success for a small movie like this. It grossed $4.6 million on its budget of only $200,000. Although I was looking and you you never know if you can trust some of these Wikipedia sources, but supposedly it was sold to Miramax, which distributed it for $5 million. So from that perspective, maybe it wasn't as successful as they were hoping it would be, but certainly this is a home video, like runaway success. Right. If I may jump in here, Josh. Oh, uh, please do. This is your pick. Yeah. And because of that, I, uh, I know a lot of the stories I've followed the stories. I used to actually love the show dinner for five that John Favreau had on IFC and he would tell some of these stories. Yes. So you're right. It was, um, it was sold for 5 million, right? So if you consider that, that they made it for 200,000, couldn't get into Sundance, packed out their own theater uh, on Fairfax with friends and then uh, some buyers and everything sold it for 5 million. And then it became a worldwide, you know, pretty big sensation. They toured the world with it, other festivals and, Everything. And then, like you said, became a huge, huge hit on home video. I think overall a uh, a win-win for everybody. And, you know, we're always rooting for wins for Harvey Weinstein here on. (laughs) (laughs) That's a joke. Clearly, that's a joke. But, you know, hey, we we do admit he had uh, he did have a magic touch of sorts in the 90s when picking independent films. Yes. So, yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as we've done these seasons on years from the 90s, it's pretty much impossible to avoid the uh, Harvey Weinstein presence. 
And he certainly had an eye for these. A films. lot of women feel that way too. <laughs> so I walked right into that there, didn't I? Um, all I meant is that like, yes, this is a huge success for the filmmakers to, to sell it for that level of a budget, but it maybe wasn't as much of a success for Miramax right away. Although I'm sure once you factor in the home videos, uh, home video sales and rentals and whatever, it was a huge success yeah. and certainly was a big pop culture thing. And it actually, we had mentioned when we talked about Bottle Rocket that uh, Wes Anderson had won this Best New Filmmaker Award at the MTV Movie Awards, which I remembered as, as kind of putting that movie on my radar. And this, I think because it came out in late 1996, and then the next year at the 1997 MTV Movie Awards, it got that same award, the Best New Filmmaker Award for Doug Lyman. And that, in, in I, I can't remember for sure, but that might have been something that put it on my radar as well. And I think as we talked about in Bottle Rocket, that is the only MTV movie award uh, that goes to anything for artistic merit. <laughs> yes, we agree that that should be the entire MTV movie award show that the filmmakers trophy and or the best known filmmaker. And then that should be it. It should be like a four minute. You could watch it on uh, IGTV and that's the whole show. Or yes, yes. So. Uh, so, well, since you've done this research, what, uh, what background, uh, info did you want to share on this film? I mean, I think like we said, that's a, that's a huge success story right away of, you know, it not getting into the festival and into Sundance, which was considered the be all end all at the time and still going on to such heights. Favreau wrote the script in two weeks based on kind of real life situations from him moving out to from Chicago to LA, he met Vaughn on the set of Rudy when they were both kind of background players. And Ron Livingston, who we like, uh, who plays Rob, is, uh, you know, that kind of relationship is real too because they moved out to get um, similar times. They were both in the Improv Olympic in Chicago together. So there's a lot of uh, real life background that they've translated over. And of course, the script which they ended up making for $200,000 actually did very well. Like um, studios wanted to make it. Doug Lyman was going to be attached to direct it and that would have been fine. And, uh, but they kept, they kept giving notes like, well, you should make Trent a woman, Trent being Vince Vaughn, or you should cut the Vegas sequence or it needs more violence, or you should cast Johnny Depp or Chris O'Donnell or Jason Priestley, or you should get rid of words like money and baby and honey, you know, like notes that, would have clearly killed this entire film. So a success on its own, uh, in spite of all these idiots telling it not to be. Yeah. See, it's weird. Like those notes. I mean, I think you're right. Those, that those all would have been bad for the movie, but I can sort of see where like some Hollywood douchebag is coming from with those notes, except for the idea that it should be more violent. I don't understand that at all. It's not the kind of movie that this is at all. We'd have to, I don't know. That's a weird note to me. But obviously, it's good that they didn't take any of those notes and that they made the movie the way they wanted to make it. Yeah. I mean, the only thing I could think of is when you said that there was like that kind of subgenre in the 90s about like cool subcultures, nightlife cultures that had, they, they, there were like a lot of movies based around them that involved violence if we look back on that. So, yeah, that's I it. I guess that's true. The kind of wave of post uh, Pulp Fiction movies that were about these kinds of characters, I guess, who are the sort of hipsters with the pop culture references, but they're also like criminals. But yeah, it, it's so it's so far from what this movie is that it would have to been like it, rewritten from scratch in order to make that work. So 
Good that they didn't do that. This movie was mostly well reviewed, although it was funny. the The reviews that I that I found are all kind of like begrudgingly positive about this movie. Um, and especially watching watching Siskel and Ebert uh, talk about it, and they they gave it two thumbs up, but they both said it was quote a marginal thumbs up. And Ebert. <laughs> Basically, his entire discussion on the TV show is about how he would not walk more than three blocks to see this movie, which was uh, the distance that they had to walk to get to the screening that they went to. So (laughs) they seem to be almost like trying to undermine it while being positive about it. That's a weird Um, that's a weird stand to take. It is a weird stand to take. And I I mean, he's trying to because I forget earlier in that episode, they talk about um uh, Get on the Bus, which I think is a Spike Lee movie, kind of a forgotten one, which yeah. they really, really liked. And so he's saying, he's like, well, I want to put this in context, you know, and how how that movie is so much better, which he also gave thumbs up to. But I feel like that's not necessary. People understand. Yeah, so. I've seen uh, Get on the Bus. It's all right. Not, not yeah, one of I, the best, not one of the worst, but uh, this I, is a I better haven't. film. Yeah, no, that's that's fair. So uh, in his in his written review, which is also marginally positive, uh, Ebert said, uh, they say you should write about what you know. Doug Lyman, who directed Swingers, and John Favreau, who wrote it, obviously know a lot about young guys in Hollywood sitting around in coffee shops talking about making it in show business. If you had entered that Best Western coffee shop a year or two ago, you might actually have seen them planning this movie. It's not a terribly original idea, but then, as one of the guys says, everybody steals from everybody. This observation is closely followed by shots cheerfully stolen from Scorsese's Goodfellas and Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs. The movie is sweet, funny, observant, and goofy with a small G, which means you don't get paid, but at least you don't have to wear the suit, which is a reference to Ron Livingston's character playing Goofy at Disneyland and doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. But that's, no. how, that's how his <laughs> review ends. So again, it seems like he's almost reluctant to praise the movie, but he feels like he has to. Yeah, maybe uh, he didn't really relate to it. <laughs> maybe not, although it's funny. I mean, we've talked about this in past episodes where Ebert is always more than willing to uh, wax rhapsodic about his younger days when he was out there picking up ladies. So I'm sort of surprised <laughs> that he doesn't mention that. This seems like yeah. the perfect opportunity. I mean, I, I, you know, this came out when we were teenagers and I already related to it, not like the night, the... The, the swing dancing in the nightclubs, but, you know, sitting at diners, talking about movies, you know, hoping we can one day make it. All that stuff was very clear to me at the age of 16 or so. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the strength of this movie is that it feels natural to, to what these kinds of people would be doing and talking about. Uh, Owen Gleiberman in Entertainment Weekly was much more positive. He gave it an A. He said, uh, working from Favreau's exuberantly witty script, Director Doug Lyman snakes his camera through parties and back alley lounges, staging sly visual satirical allusions to Reservoir Dogs, Goodfellas, and Saturday Night Fever. He captures something hilarious and touching, a new attitude of wistful modesty on the part of young macho cruisers, a recognition that what works today is raw testosterone in a velvet glove. And then later, I liked his observation here about Vince Vaughn. If Swingers has a scene stealer, though, it's Vince Vaughn, who I predict is going to be a very big star. Spooky, cool, sexy, like the young Christopher Walken. He makes Trent a rudely magnetic arrested development case. The spirit of the peacock in all its fearless vanity. I did like the idea that that at this time that Vince Vaughn was going to become this kind of sex symbol, which is very much not what happened with Vince Vaughn. Yeah, but as we know and talk about in the legacy, like, you know, they sent this movie to Spielberg so they could get the 
rights to the Jaws music and he watched it and before this was anything and he's like, uh, it's fun, huh? Uh, I'm going to cast him in the Jurassic Park sequel. So, you know, he definitely was magnetic on screen and uh, this this made him, man. This made him, baby. And that's one of the things that I was fascinated by uh, watching this movie now, having not seen it since 1996, is that Vince Vaughn and uh, and John Favreau look not only do they look really really young in this movie, um, but they look really good. Like they're they're really like good looking guys. And uh, you know, as we we're saying, like the idea that Vince Vaughn would would become this sex symbol definitely is not what happened, and certainly not Favreau either. And these guys, you know, they're very successful. This movie worked out for that. They did not age very well. I, I will say. I mean, look, Favreau definitely went the dad bod route, and uh, Vince Vaughn maybe had some issues with other things, but um, yeah, his energy really explodes off the screen in this. Um, but also, I want to give Vince Vaughn a little credit because if you look at his filmography, not to say he's made all great movies because he certainly hasn't, but we've talked about in the past guys like McConaughey and Luke Wilson who really try to go for like that leading man, you know, just rom-com BS. And Vince Vaughn, for the most part, avoided it. Like, his comedy stuff, like, you know, Old School and uh, Wedding Crashers, those are definitely more masculine versions of comedy with romantic uh, pieces in there. Yeah, I'm not I'm not impugning their talents. And, and I just was, again, I was just struck by how good looking they are in this movie. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, it, it's like looking at an old picture of myself, Josh. So, so, so true. <laughs> I've gotten, I've gotten so far downhill. But no, I hear what you're saying. I, I mean, Favreau was jacked, wasn't he? He was in such good shape for this thing. And maybe it was all that swing dancing that it took to prepare for it. But um, can I tell you the most shocking statement, the most shocking part of your statement, Josh? Sure. That you hadn't seen this since 1996, man. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. We'll uh we'll we'll get to that in a second. I've got one more review uh to quote here to uh get the kind of grudging respect from the critics. Uh Michael Wilmington in the Chicago Tribune said, just when you were wondering if a law could be passed barring young LA and New York movie makers from making any more films out of their barroom conversations, this little dilly proves you wrong. Economically made and ingeniously shot with a lightweight Aton 35.3 camera by director-cinematographer Doug Lyman, Swingers is a great example of how cheaply to turn life into art. Swingers doesn't really add up to much except a good time, but it's smart, funny, and cute. With all that going for you, who needs to be money? I think it's, it is worth noting there that Doug Lyman was the cinematographer on this movie as well. Uh, yeah, I think there are a few good points in that. Um review and that quote was that one this was definitely in the 90s a very uh again another subgenre new york bar scene la bar scene angsty 20 year olds just like in the 80s it was we graduated high school what are we going to do with our lives this was the post college what are we going to do with our lives type thing you know so i like that and i like that he credited doug lyman because doug lyman did shoot this very creatively and gave it a real look gave it a real feel and a lot of the time because they shot it on such a low budget, like this camera that they used is not an ideal camera to make a feature film. And they were using like short ends, which is film that is like the snipped off parts that most people don't need or haven't used. So 
you could usually only get 60 seconds at a time on some of those takes. So really good use in creative and um, effective filmmaking. Yeah, I think visually I was, that was one thing that struck me about the movie having, you know, not seen it in all that time and coming back to it was like, this actually is a, a pretty visually impressive movie. And I think honestly, maybe my favorite part of the movie is the like sort of opening, uh, I don't know if it's the opening credits or just like the opening montage right before or after the credits of like snapshots of Hollywood life that very much feel authentic. I mean, presumably because they were authentic, they were shooting in these real bars and real hangouts where people were often without closing them down. Uh, because they couldn't afford to. So, I mean, it felt to me like a real honest sense of place in this movie. And that's something that Doug Lyman captures almost in like a documentary sense. Yeah, I love that. As you know, we've talked about in other episodes. And I think you can go even before that when the Miramax kind of emblem comes up and you hear Favreau and Vaughn just kind of chattering over the, you know, kind of the opening titles. And then you're right, you get to those credits and you get that cool montage over you're nobody till somebody loves you dean martin getting a real feel right away but your favorite part of the movie come on bro like you said i hadn't seen this movie since 1996 and much like vince vaughn and john favreau's physiques it has not aged well you're 100 percent wrong Ugh, who are you even what are you talking about gross um well, I think, and I, I was trying to remember this because I think you and I might have seen this movie together in 1996. I have this memory of going with like a group of people from high school to see this movie at like the discount dollar theater in 1996, but I, it's kind of fuzzy. So I don't know. Do you remember yeah. when you first saw it? Yes, I do. And it was a random group of some of our friends and just some other film fans from our school that I could name and nobody would have any knowledge of it and you'd be like ha 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 that's a name i haven't heard in a long time or thought about you know but what happened was our old drama teacher miss hunnity who used to somehow work in the industry and and seemed to see every single movie she was the one who told us about it she i remember her telling us there's this movie swingers and these guys talk in such a different way and the way they say money and bunnies and babies and it's like a whole new language and you got to go see it. And she was the one who recommended it. And then we all went to see it. And uh, a lot of us came out for the better. And you beat you just stayed you. <laughs> all right. Yeah, I, I, I did. I don't think I had a class with her at that time. So I am assuming that it was probably you who told me like, hey, there's this cool movie we're going to go see and you should come see it with us. And I think I liked it at the time. But uh, and I didn't dislike it this time, but it feels extraordinarily dated to me. And not always in a bad way. Like I was saying, that that opening uh, montage, it gives you a real sense of what the sort of nightlife was like in Hollywood in 1996. And that is kind of fascinating. But the the, the humor and the character relationships and, and that kind of stuff, I, I felt was pretty uh, creaky. Oh, man. This time I, around. I totally want to get into that with you because I'm going to disagree with so much of it. But Dave, Dave here, our producer, the guy behind the guy behind the guy. What was the first time <laughs> when was the first time you saw this movie? I don't think I saw it in the theater in 96, but I saw it many 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 times around 99 2000 college basically in college all the time. Bro, I'm the same. But in yeah. our in our thing it was like if you wanted to hook up with someone you would put this movie on and it was kind of assumed that if you guys were watching the movie together you wouldn't get through the entire movie you would watch it cuz it put you in such a good mood and about halfway through you would hook up 
Sorry, Josh. Man, I've missed yeah, out. I've seen it in college. I've missed out on so much, apparently. I was watching Fight Club over and over again in college, so maybe that was my problem. <laughs> um, that, and, that and Bring It On. I think those were the two movies I watched the most in college. So I, mean, I don't know what that tells you about me. I'm pretty sure that I had this poster on my wall in college, as many college students did at this point in time you know oh yeah yeah i sure. can see that that along with like the pulp fiction poster were probably go to uh college dorm room movie posters in the 90s I, that absolutely makes sense to me well we'll get into then a potential disagreement uh when we come back and talk our general thoughts on swingers Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1996, we've been talking about Jason's personal pick, Swingers. And Jason, obviously this is a movie that you loved when you first saw it. You saw a bunch more times over the years and you still love, so take it away. What do you love about this movie? You're right, man. And I couldn't tell you, the. it's been a few years since I watched it, but it's just such a pleasure, such a breeze. You talk about the humor not holding up, and I'm I'm shocked at that. The humor is great because it's got so many funny little things, uh, you know, relationship humor, if you will, friendship humor, stuff like, you know, where Mikey, uh, played by Favreau, is constantly obsessed with his ex. And, you know, he's 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 messing up every single situation just to constantly harp on this ex and his friends are there for him and they have to uplift him and. Um, a good example of the type of humor I'm talking about is um, like when he and Rob are playing golf and they're they both are counting their strokes and it's clear that they got like 12, 13. And what did you get? And he's like, I got Nate. What about you? He's like, I got Nate, you know, just little fun things like that. And, you know, j I just really liked it. I don't know. What didn't you like about it? Well, I think there are some, there are amusing, I'm not saying that it's not at all funny or anything like that. I think there are amusing bits. And, and actually that, that golf joke that you, you quoted there is, is one of the funnier things in it. Um, I didn't really like the characters like as people. And I think this kind of movie, which is a, a, like a hangout movie really relies on the idea that you want to like, just spend time with these guys. Cause there's not much of a plot. And I mean, there is a little bit of the idea that 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 Mikey, the John Favreau's character, has to get over this X and get back out there. But even that is pretty loosely defined as the movie goes on. Uh, it's really just about these guys hanging out, doing their dumb stuff, playing uh, Nintendo hockey or whatever, and going to bar after bar after bar and and party after party after party. And I just found them tiresome as people, especially Trent. And I realized Trent, the Vince Vaughn character, is meant to be a bit abrasive. He's kind of uh, loud and uh, rude to people at times. But I just found him so unlikable that I couldn't, like, honestly, I couldn't stand that character at all. And so yeah. I think... Even if you're like, okay, he's kind of a dick at times, but you have to, and, and Mikey is a more likable guy. He's more low key. You still have to buy into the idea that these guys are, are good friends and that they want to hang out together and that there's a fun dynamic between them. And again, I just didn't, I didn't feel that way. I think there's a, there's a slight misogynist tone running through this movie. And it's, it's a question of like, well, is that 
the characters or is that the perspective of the movie? And I think it's a mix of both. And it's not necessarily impossible to depict that, but it was just one other thing that made me not really like these guys and not root for them. I wasn't rooting for them to meet women. I wasn't rooting for Mikey to get over his girlfriend. He just kind of seemed like a whiny loser. And I do think there's some nice stuff later, especially once he meets the Heather Graham character, which is basically the end of the movie, but they had the kind of dynamic that I would have hoped for from other characters earlier in the movie. And I didn't, I didn't hate this movie at all, but considering how big a deal it is, how much I remembered liking it, and how much you obviously like it, I was sort of shocked at how little I liked it watching it this time. Yeah, what a bummer that you hate fun. Um, <laughs> well, you already knew that about me. <laughs> yeah, but no, look, uh, here's what I'm going to say. Um, I do think the relationships here are the strength. The friendships are the strength. I think those, um, the relationships between Mikey and Trent are well-drawn and Mikey and Rob are well-drawn. Um, I will agree with you that there is a misogynistic, uh, you called it an overtone. I might call it an undertone, but, um, but again, like we just got, you know, last week talked about Kolya and it's like, you know, these are dudes in their 20s in the mid 90s who uh, clearly a few of them are very straight up honest that all they want to do is bang women. Right. And Mikey is the the different one. Uh, you know, he wants to do something else. So, like, again, like contextually time and place, like we've seen hundreds of movies like that where guys are like that and that's all that they are. Uh, and I would say this is a more amusing version of that. I don't think these guys could be who that like they can't be in their mid twenties today with that attitude. Right. Um, and you wouldn't feel, you wouldn't feel good about that, but it was, it was the mid nineties. It was different time and, uh, maybe a little more innocent of, of their, while their intentions were to sleep with women, they weren't, they weren't, um, lecherous or creepy. They were just putting themselves out there this young macho bravado. And I think you're talking about the depth of these characters. And I'm saying in your mid twenties, how much depth do you have? They're still learning as people. And, you know, uh, they are are people like they're not just, I mean, or they should be uh, in a good movie. You should be able to understand them as broader than, or as deeper than just catchphrases or whatever, which is another thing. I think you do. Yeah, I think you do. You want to get to the catchphrases. I just want to say one more thing. You you mentioned Mikey's like kind of a, a crying little bitch about getting over his ex. That's not uh, my word, but yeah, okay. Having known both you and me for a long time, we've both been crying little bitches about getting over exes and, before. And I'm not saying that that's not something that you can have in a movie. And 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 again, for me, that ultimately ended up being the most compelling thing that eventually it gets to a point where when he's moving on and he has this, he has character growth, which Trent obviously does not, um, and maybe isn't supposed to, that was fine. I just felt like early in the movie, rather than rooting for Mikey to do like what Trent wants him to do, which is just go bang whoever's number he can possibly get. I wasn't rooting for either of them to succeed in what they were trying to go for. And I just but found it more annoying than endearing. But that's not, that's definitely what Trent wanted. And dude, you can't tell me you've, maybe you can, but I can tell you as, as someone, you know, who's been through breakups, I've definitely heard you got to get back out there. You got to have a slump buster, you know, you got to get on the horse again, right? You'll feel better after you sleep with someone else. And part of that is the, is the 
false uh, or the 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 in the minute confidence you get, you know, because you were able to connect with someone in that way. But um, no, I get what you're saying. I just think it's not really true because Mikey never does that. He's fighting that the whole way, even when he kind of goes along with what what Trent wants him to do. He finds ways of messing it up, like when they're in Vegas and they go back to the cocktail waitresses, um, you know, her trailer and Trent and 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 uh, her, she, whatever, they're going to hook up. And then Mikey's left out there with Dorothy, we'll call her, because she played a Dorothy in the MGM shows. And it looks like they're making out and he's just saying how much he misses Michelle. And, you know, and and she says the line I was talking about earlier, where she says, I'm sure you'll you know, you guys will get back together because. She's just on a rebound. And he goes, yeah, but we were just on a rebound. And he goes, she goes, well, how long was the relationship before you? And she, and she goes, six years. And he goes, and how long were you together? And he goes, six years, you know? So just like, I think there's some really funny, poignant dialogue in there. And uh, I do root for this. And if, in fact, I think it's interesting that because Mikey and Trent are the main relationship here, you would almost think that that opening scene would be Mikey and Trent together, but it's Mikey and Rob and Rob kind of telling him, you you um she's never going to call you until you move on until you forget about her and he goes well can i pretend to forget about her and he's like well you can but she'll know she's only going to call when you actually forget about her there's the rub like that shouldn't really work but it works because of the dynamic and the driver of this movie yeah that scene is more pleasant than any of the scenes with trent i mean i think that's maybe what what soured me on some of this movie is that i just found trent so off-putting and unpleasant to watch that uh, I couldn't really be that entertained by the stuff that involved him. Um, and again, I liked the movie better when he was not there. And it was about Mikey connecting with, with the women or even the scenes that he has with Rob, with Ron Livingston's character, his other kind of best friend, but who's clearly not as central a character to the movie. I like that better. That golf scene that you mentioned has a nice low-key vibe to it. So... I, yeah, I don't know. And then the catchphrases. We have to talk about the catchphrases because they fucking annoyed the hell out of me. I, I forgot <laughs> how like oppressive the catchphrases are in this movie. Dude, I just think, again, because you're saying it's dated. And I think one of the reasons you're saying it's dated is because of those catchphrases, which at the time were very were new. We, you know, we hadn't heard that per se before, at least not like that. But I look at it differently. I look at it as a really, really honest portrayal of a subculture in a time and a place and like really effective version of it. But yeah, you, you don't like money. You don't like the babies. You don't like Vegas, baby. You don't like any of it. No. And I think the other thing about that is at this time to me, not only do they say it constantly, which I found annoying, but it seems like they're trying so hard to like coin a new catchphrase. Like they say things that people didn't actually say. It's not like they're using some some slang that sounds dated because it's from that time period and we don't say it anymore. They were kind of like pushing this as their thing in this movie. And it just feels really forced to me. Every time Trent says money or beautiful baby, uh, it sounds to me like I can hear John Favreau typing it into the script. Uh, and I disagree with you. I do think that this was probably the way that they talked because he wrote it in two weeks. So when he met, you know, the 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 background on money is that the old Michael Jordan commercial with Spike Lee, the Mars Blackman commercial, Spike Lee calls him money, right? And then with Favreau and Vaughn on the set of Rudy, 
he heard Vaughn started to like kind of describe people as money. And it's like, you're, you know, when you're young, you say stuff like that. I remember in high school, like if, if someone was, you know, cool or something smooth happened, you, I, Oh, that was butter. That was as smooth as butter. That was butter. And I remember my Spanish teacher once I, at one point she said, uh, I was like, yeah, that, you know, that was a really good thing. And she goes, es mantequilla? Like, is that butter? You know? So, um, so I disagree. I think all these catchphrases, it, it, it would be like you saying that swing dancing wasn't a real thing in this subculture. Maybe you and I didn't know Bunny and Baby, but I'm pretty sure these like cats in LA in their mid twenties who probably did drive around to parties and bars every night, you know, looking for women and um, are we supposed to be impressed by them because they wear a backpack uh that was a good line on fabric oh yeah that's literally the most dated line in this movie (laughs) but (laughs) but to be fair that is something that was a big trend for women to do at the time yeah anyway i just disagree with you i think it was fair and honest and i bet you vince vaughn that character was not very far off from who Vince Vaughn was at the time no and i think you're probably right about that and I, i i think it's fine for a movie to kind of invent lingo for characters to say like, yeah, maybe this isn't realistic dialogue per se, but this is how these people talk to each other. And if you believe those, the movie and you believe those characters, then you can buy into that, even though maybe it's not how you talk or how you've seen other people talk. But I just, it felt forced to me every time he said it, every time that word came out of his mouth, it didn't feel authentic to me. Um, And that's the writing, or maybe it's Vince Vaughn's performance, or maybe it's a mix of both, but I think that was my issue is that it didn't, I, I didn't think of it as something that was realistic. And then even without it being realistic, it didn't feel like something that fit organically into the movie. No, you're wrong. All right. Dave, you want to jump to in ch- here? Yeah, just to chime in real quick. Uh, I was at a party just before all this coronavirus stuff started and people were saying money. Really? I mean, they were successful with this. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I really think all of this, I, I've also heard from, uh, you know, some, some like tackier friends calling women babies. Um, but you know, like, and, and stuff like that. I mean, a lot of this stuff I think stuck, you know, I, I hear what you're saying, Josh, but I think that they were absolutely successful in creating kind of a weird little, uh, movie moment that kind of lived on. I don't think it would have, if it wasn't authentic, Josh. You're saying it was mm-hmm. just pulled out of thin air. I'm saying it was natural. And this is this is how they were talking to each other. And it felt very natural. And that is why it, it kind of caught on, I think. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I feel like I think Dave is right in that this movie. I mean, obviously, this was a big pop culture sensation and a movie that that had a lasting resonance that we can talk about. But I mean, to me, the idea that someone might say something is money now is the equivalent of somebody doing like a Borat impression. Like it happens and they do, but I don't approve of it. (laughs) You know what? I'm going to give you that one, Josh. I'll agree with that. I don't want to hear people. Oh, that's so money, you know? And it's like, but when I watch this and there's the scene where Trent and uh, Sue are talking to Mikey in the bar and trying to get his confidence up and then you're so money and you don't even know you're like this bear with these claws. What are you going to do with these claws? I, I thought it was great. It was a hilarious motivational speech back then. And it still held up as like, like, I think it really happened. And if you do the reading on the, you know, the background of the script, I think that, you know, scene in particular was one that actually was based on a real situation with him and Vince Vaughn. Yeah. No, I mean, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm harping on the negatives here, 
But there are things that I like about this movie. I mean, I mentioned the sense of place and it's not just in that opening montage. I mean, throughout the movie, all the bars and the parties that they go to and the way they talk about Hollywood bars and nothing has a sign. And, and actually, especially the swing dance culture, which is the thing in this movie that is, is extremely dated, but it feels like a glimpse into some particular moment that was happening in that time. And I think it's done really, really effectively. So I liked all of that about it. I liked eventually the relationship that, you know, the, the character growth that Mikey goes through and the way in the, the kind of second to last scene where he doesn't want to talk to his ex-girlfriend anymore. When Heather Graham calls him on the phone, he wants to talk to her. I thought that was really effectively done. I thought they had a really sweet dynamic that that is missing. She's the only female character in the movie who has like any like sliver of, of dimension or agency to her. And I liked that. I like, I think Heather Graham is kind of an underrated actor. Um, so I, I liked that about the movie, the, the use of the music, not only in the swing dance scenes, but the idea that they have this, this kind of big band uh, swing music throughout, I thought was good. And, and the Vegas stuff, you know, we're here in Las Vegas, and, and I think we have to acknowledge that even though the Vegas aspect of this movie is a really small aspect of it, it, it had a, a kind of outsized influence on how people perceive Vegas. And, and I, you know, I think it's done nice things for Vegas here. Yeah, well, Vegas Baby, pe people definitely still say that. So, they do, they do. There was know. a movie called Vegas Baby, which is a very, very, very bad movie. That, uh, But, yeah, the, the Vegas sequence, which takes place about... 10 minutes in where we're going to Vegas. You're, you're too down. We're going to Vegas. That sequence is kind of like an early rocket booster. It kind of takes this movie to the next level. And we definitely see their failures, like as trying to be cool. Like when they, you know, go up to the table and like, you know, first they say, I, I got three. Mikey says, I got 300. I'm only going to bet a hundred. So of course he says he's going to bet 300 and he gets three chips back. You know, do you have anything the uh, you know, smaller? And he's like, yes, but you'd have to play at a, a table where the hundred dollar minimum isn't the buy-in, you know? So funny stuff there. Obviously, uh, one of my favorite says we can get breakfast anytime. I'll have pancakes in the age of enlightenment. <laughs> that's a, that's a fun one from back yeah. in the day. Yeah. But I, I do agree besides the friendships and that time of sense and place in LA, which I think was a very honest, uh, kind of look at it. Yeah, no, I know. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. One other thing I liked was the way they showed Mike continue to fail. Right. We mentioned that, you know, he was left alone with the one in Vegas and he could have hooked up with her and he's, you know, instead like more worried about using his calling card, which there, there's something dated. Right. To see if right. he's got any messages on his machine from his ex, you know, Trent tells this amazing story about an audition and the, the women are in you know, enraptured and, and he just follows it up with, yep, we all have stories. And then of course the answering machine sequences, you know, which are very, which are great, almost iconic. The first one where the answering machine is talking to Mikey because he's, he gets messages just from his friends. Did she call yet? Blah, blah, blah. And then his grandma, you know, we all miss you. Are you coming back anytime soon? And then, you know, as he turns it off, the answering machine, which is based on a Jeff Garland bit I read, um, says, you know, you have to move on. There are plenty of fish in the sea, right? It's a funny bit. But then I think the second answering machine bit uh, is even more effective when he meets Nikki at a bar and gets her number. And, you know, Trent and Sue say, call him, call her in like three days. So, of course, he calls her like that night at three in the morning or whatever. And he says, you know, I just wanted to call to say, you know, how you doing? And, you know, he gets cut off by her machine. and then. 
it just goes on and on. Like, I just want to leave my number and now you have it. And so call me and then, you know, look, I got to be honest. He calls back again. I just got out of something. It's like, it's not you. It's me. It's just, just very funny stuff. I think. Yeah. That scene, that second sort of answering machine scene where he keeps calling her and calling her and like, just digs himself deeper and deeper into this hole. Uh, every time he calls back until finally she picks up the phone on the last one and says, please don't ever call me again. That's a really effective scene. I think so. And it, it does show him, I mean, it shows him as kind of a loser, but in a way that illustrates the the character growth that he's going to go through, that he has to be able to uh, let go of all those insecurities that he's dealing with related to his ex-girlfriend that he's kind of finally able to do when he meets Lorraine, the Heather Graham character. So yeah, I like that. I mean, there are there are plenty of things about this movie that that I do like. Um, and and I do like the Vegas stuff. It's cool that, uh, you know, that they did that at a time when maybe younger people going to Vegas wasn't as much of a thing. I think this, you know, along with like the real world or whatever, which was, I, I don't remember exactly, it was a few years later, but yeah, I think this movie actually actually had a big influence on the idea that like Vegas was a cool place for like young hipsters to come. Um, so I certainly uh, appreciate that. I wanted to ask you as a stand-up comedian, did you believe Mikey's character as a comedian? Well, we never really heard him do any comedy. He just said he was a comedian, right? So, right. Like, so I, I, it's almost like an afterthought. He hosts an open mic at, at basically, uh, what do they call it? The Ha Ha Hut, which might right. be, you know, the Ha Ha Cafe in North, in North Hollywood or something like that. Or, um, it, or it could be as something like the Hamburger Hamlet in, you know, in West LA, who knows? But um, I I, th- I think it was I know what you're saying because we never see him on stage and all we see is like this down kind of brooding guy who comes off more as like an, a writer. But um, yeah, I I don't know. I, I it's almost to, to me like I didn't even consider him a stand up comedian or not. It was ir- irrelevant. Yeah, I mean it is irrelevant to the story, but he mentions it like a lot. A few and times. I, yeah. You're- yeah. And I just, every time he thought, I was like, I can't imagine this character like ever telling a joke. Like it just didn't, I mean, I think it's smart. And I know you and I have talked about this, the idea that like you make a movie about a, like a stand-up comedian, especially starring an actor or create written and directed by people who aren't stand-up comedians and you show them on stage telling jokes and it's always very unconvincing. Oh, it is not good. Yeah. So it's smart that they don't show that, but just the character as a person doesn't seem like somebody who would tell jokes on stage. Yeah, maybe. I mean, you know, like we know that Favreau spent time at the Improv Olympic in Chicago. So my guess is it was probably easier for him to say he's a stand-up than an improv actor, <laughs> you know, like at the time that wasn't really a big thing, you know? Right. Um, so I can understand that. But um, one other thing I wanted to mention was I really love the last scene on the phone where Lorraine calls him, he's thinking about calling her and he's going to wait and she calls him. And then of course that's when Michelle, the ex calls and he, you know, they start talking. He's like, can I call you back? And she says, I'm going out of town for a week. And can we just talk now? And she goes, and he says, yeah, nah, well, I'll, you know, I'll call you when you get back into town and they hang up. And as they're hanging up, she says, I love you. And he doesn't either hear or care. And I, I think that was the original ending of the movie. And I think that would have been a very effective ending of the movie. And then you have that kind of like postscript moment where it's Mikey and Trent at the diner and they're talking and Trent sees uh, the woman playing those games, playing those crazy baby games and giving him this vibe. So he's giving her this wacky vibe back and she's actually just trying to entertain her 
infant child, you know, which is a funny bit. But I kind of think that the ending on the phone might have been the perfect ending. I agree with you. I think that that phone scene and like I was saying, that's that's a great scene to illustrate that character growth. I like that scene a lot. It feels authentic and it feels like the story has gotten itself to like a nice uh, stopping point. Um, and then I do think that that last, like, not only do I think that that would have been a better ending, but I think that last scene with them in the diner and the baby is just really dumb and not funny. And it left me sort of like with a bad impression at the end of the movie, where right before that I had a nice impression like, oh, this is, this is kind of closing out on a nice note. And then it just throws this dumb joke at you and a reminder of like, oh, remember Trent? He's kind of an immature dick. And that's how the movie ends. So yeah, I wasn't crazy about that ending, but I do agree that that scene on the phone is, is really well done. And that's, that's part of what I like the most about the movie. All right. Well, um, yeah, man. I mean, you know, we've kind of covered this. They they go through the nightlife. Nothing's ever good enough in a bar or a party, so they're always looking for the next thing. I could totally relate to that. I will say I was shocked at the amount of wallet chains in this film. That was <laughs> yes. a little off-putting. Yeah, <laughs> you know? there's a lot of large... I mean, it's it's the 1996 movie through and through. There's all the wallet chains that you could ever imagine are in this movie. And then one other little thing I wanted to say is that poster. I, I looked at it recently, you know, online. and um. I thought the marketing was so incorrect for this movie, right? You know, the slogans they had were cocktails first, questions later, which no. And also, especially today, no, you know? Yeah. yeah. And the other one was get a nightlife, which was, you know, can, can we just do anything? Maybe just yeah. anything? Yeah, so, those are those are not great marketing taglines, but it didn't but, matter but because it became a huge, you know, success anyway. Right. And that's what I'm saying is I think that that's part of it is like even the marketing team probably didn't understand this was such a different world, you know. So, yeah, that's pretty much uh, all I have to say. I love I like we mentioned the um, the golf scene and like they're totally missing. And, you know, <laughs> you know, they yell stuff like get there as if the ball has any chance of, you know, those little subtle things I really enjoyed. So, yeah, I I'm ready to rate it if you are, Josh, yeah. out of uh, out, out of big, of, big, bad voodoo daddies. Yeah, we can rate it out. Or I was going to say swing dances. So <laughs> whatever, however you like. I mean, it. I, I give it four and a half swing dances, baby. It's still money, and it All knows right. it. It does know it. That is a true thing about this movie. It's very taken with itself. Self self reference. Yes, yes. Uh, I'm going to give it a three out of five. It was it was mildly entertaining to me this time. So that's about. The Would you walk it. more than three blocks to see it, man? You know me. I'm not into walking, so yeah. um, probably you not. Fit in well with these guys. Yeah, yeah. Just drive everywhere in their separate cars, even though they're all going to the same place. Right, know? right. And and they all have the club. That was another thing I noticed. I didn't realize the club was such a big deal in 1996. I think I think that those were hilarious points. Is like they're all going out together, yet they all drive and meet each place. That's such an LA thing, and I think the club is probably too because. Probably wasn't as big, you know, in Chicago or New York, although maybe it should have been. Dave, when was the last time you saw the movie? It's been a while. I watched a bunch of clips this morning uh, getting ready for this. But um, yeah, it's been a long time. I've seen it at least a dozen, maybe two dozen times, though. Wow. So you're you're probably with me then. Yeah, it's up there. Maybe a four or four and a half. I'd have to rewatch it to really say. Yeah, I, I loved it back in the day. And we gave and we gave we I mentioned a lot of the Mikey lines, but Josh, you're, Trent has a lot of hilarious lines, too, even though you mm, don't think so. No, I don't think so. 
Well, let's then uh, take a break and come back to talk about the legacy of swingers. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode on the films of 1996, we've been talking about Jason's pick, Swingers, a movie that Jason loves, that Dave loves, that I didn't love. But it's undeniable that this movie is incredibly influential. And we talked a little bit about some of these aspects. Uh, Of course, Vince Vaughn and Jon Favreau, this launched them into massive careers that are continuing on to this day. Jason, as you're mentioning, Steven Spielberg kind of scouted Vince Vaughn out of this to cast him in The Lost World, the Jurassic Park sequel. And then he went on to have kind of an up and down career. There was a time when he was a massive movie star. And I think he's kind of down to being a sort of mid-level movie star now. And I think he's had some substance abuse issues maybe. Um, but he's had a pretty steady career and uh, and worked a lot with an actor that we talked about in a recent episode, Owen Wilson. Yeah, and he's made some interesting choices. Like, you know, he was in that go-to A-list of comedy stars probably in the early 2000s with him and Owen Wilson and Ben Stiller and uh, Will Ferrell, you know, and you, you get your wedding crashers in your old schools and. Anchorman, he's very good in. But, you know, and Favs obviously became one of the biggest directors and producers in Hollywood, right? Yes. So, um, you know, I was looking up both their filmographies and I wanted to mention, I was like, are there any things that we might, you know, might have skipped? Like, you know, Jon Favreau, because he's so big in the in the Marvel universe and now the Mandalorian, which that's his baby you know, as the producer, you know, do we do we even remember that he made Elf, which is a great movie? Elf you is know? a great movie. Yeah. Elf is much better yeah. movie than this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love the dark comedy. Very bad things from the late 90s. I, I would have to watch it again, but I remember liking it back then. I remember liking it, too. And I think you and I saw that together in the theater. And that's a movie that I haven't seen since then. And if you look at commentary, people hate that movie with such a strong passion that I had, I have to wonder about how I'd feel about it going, going back. To yeah. It that would, that would just make me want to watch it more. Yeah. But, um, and then Favs, of course, PCU from even before this time, I think. It oh was my that. God. Yes. I remember I saw PCU at a test screening in, in, in LA, uh, where we got to fill out the comment cards afterwards before it was released. And that was, a. Uh, very, you know, an exciting experience for like my 12 year old or 13 year old self or whatever. So on the flip side, Vince Vaughn, you know, he had this kind of A-list career that we mentioned, but he also did some weird movies, The Cell, Clay Pigeons. He was just in Seaburg this past year. And then, you know, Dave and I always like him from uh, the Craig Zoller movies, Brawl and Cell Block 99, you know, stuff sure. like that, where he's just in these, he's these gritty, like, uh, you know, uh, white guy on tough times, son of a bitch who gets into horrible fights with people. Yeah, I think that's I <laughs> maybe one of the reasons that he works with Craig Zoller. He's also known for being kind of a political conservative, I think, although he doesn't tout that. But that's something that that maybe informs some of his opportunities, perhaps. But I do I do think I feel like Vince Vaughn is can be very like he can be a good like character actor who who dives into those parts, especially those kind of semi sleazy guys. Uh, I think Dave and I both recently saw the movie Arkansas, where he plays like a drug mm-hmm. kingpin and he does a good job in that. But I, yep. I think he can also be really like grating and annoying if he plays a character who's meant to be likable, but he kind of plays it with that sleazy energy. And I think that's when I like him less, maybe in in broad comedies. And I enjoy him more in those darker 
uh, either dark comedies or, or dramas, I think he works better in those. You might you might be right. Like I remember, you know, I'd have to watch it again. But I liked Thumbsucker. He was good in that. He's good at making things better than they are on paper when there when there isn't much to the character. You know, like um, he was in the this season of Curb Your Enthusiasm, and obviously he's working with great material there. But he did a very good job of like you know playing a Funkhauser Josh. So. Um, I thought that was good. The one other movie that I want to mention, you know, I liked the two other John Favreau directed uh, movies that he that he starred in, which were made, which you know he and Vince Vaughn reteamed, and then Chef, and Chef kind of had a um, a zeitgeist moment too, a huge pop cultural influence. So it's kind of interesting that he was able to make two of those things and and you know twenty years apart, and they were both so huge in their own ways. Yeah, he's had a weird like varied influence on pop culture. And like you were saying, he's he's like one of the architects of the whole like Star Wars universe at this point. And he was one of the early architects of the Marvel universe directing uh, the first two Iron Man movies. So it's you, you would not ever have imagined that for him from watching this or even from watching Made or, or even from watching Chef, which I hate that movie, Chef. But you're right. It was a huge pop culture sensation. You want to talk about self-congratulatory? That is the most smug self-congratulatory movie I may have ever seen. Um, nah, I liked it. And now they have a TV show, those two on Netflix. So. I like it too. Yeah, yeah. I, I think he's probably better. I haven't seen that show, but I think that's just a documentary show rather than a narrative. Right. And I think that's probably a better approach for him on that that food tip. Yeah, but honestly, I had mentioned in the first segment, I used to love Dinner for Five, where it was him and four other people in the entertainment industry, and they would just sit around telling Hollywood stories while they ate dinner. And uh, there's this great story that he told once about, I think he was auditioning for the Shawshank Redemption. And uh, Josh, you had mentioned that his uh, body type changes, shall we say? <laughs> yeah. So he was, um, he was the character he was auditioning for was named fat ass and he knew it. And he's like, this is just insulting. So he decided to like play a joke on the casting assistant. So he would, he went up to the desk and he said, yeah, I'm here, I'm here to audition for the role of Fatus. And like, he, she's like, what? He's like, yeah, Fatus, it says it right here. And he, he kept saying it until she corrected him and, and made sure that he knew it was for fat ass, which I thought was funny. <laughs> Lastly on these two, before we move on, Josh, yeah. The breakup, the breakup's a damn good movie. Somewhat lost in time. I really like that film. Yeah, a lot of people do. I remember not really liking it, but I do like Peyton Reed, the director. I feel like he's done a lot of good stuff. As I just mentioned, bring it on earlier in this episode. And Marvel, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's also worked yeah. with Marvel, the Ant-Man movies, which I think are a lot of fun. Uh, so that might be something for me to revisit. I was also just, as you were talking about John Favreau's physique, I was remembering he also had that weird period where he was like, wanted to be like an MMA fighter. And he had that guest starring arc on friends where he played an MMA fighter. He's just, he's gone in so many unexpectedly weird directions in his did, career. Did he really want to be an MMA fighter? I knew that character, but I didn't know that he, I think it that. was, I think, and I I'd have to look this up now cause it just occurred to me, but I think it was partially based on if maybe he didn't want to be an MMA fighter, but he got really into the whole subculture and, and yeah. kind of immersed himself in it and like trained himself to the point where maybe he could have been an MMA fighter. Yeah. And you could have seen him making a movie about that. Like, yes, you know, before it exploded, I could have, seen that so right you know look ron livingston a constantly working actor heather graham constantly working nikki played by brooke langton right she works all the time a lot of these 
Uh, and Alex Desert, you know, Becker. Who doesn't love Becker? Becker, um, you know, uh, yeah. You know, but a lot of these people are working constantly. Like we, it, when it was Dave's pick uh, in 2007, we talked about the 10 and how the, the basically everyone in the state is pretty much working. Like there is a mm-hmm. massive success rate of people who have come out of this and none of us knew before who are working regularly, nonstop, still, uh, you know, very vital to the industry. Yeah. And I think both Ron Livingston and Heather Graham are kind of underrated as actors. You know, they do a lot of lower profile, lower budget films. Um, I just saw Heather Graham as the star of an indie film called The Rest of Us that was uh, just came out on VOD a few months ago. And she's rarely like the lead of anything anymore. But she she did a really good job in that movie. That's kind of this this understated melancholy uh, comedy. But I like them both. I think they're both good actors and and maybe deserve better parts in what they do currently. Well, I think Livingston gets a lot of stuff. I mean, you know, um, he does a lot of good TV stuff, Boardwalk Empire. He had a good run on Sex and the City. Oh, yeah. And then, of course, you know, one underrated film that we both like, I think, is Joe Swanberg's Drinking Buddies, which he's in, you know. Yeah, I do like that movie a lot. So I just wanted to say one more thing about Ron Livingston. It's pretty cool to have this and Office Space on your resume. Two iconic, very important 90s indie movies that that have uh, lived on in, in much larger fashions. Yeah, both those movies incredibly influential. Um, so I guess we got to talk about Doug Lyman, who used this as a, as a, a jumping off point to direct a lot of big blockbustery type things, including the first Born Identity movie and uh, uh, Edge of Tomorrow with Tom Cruise, which I think is a fun, underrated movie, although it's maybe not underrated anymore because it has a lot of critical acclaim. But he is very uneven and he's made some really bad movies, um, including stuff like Jumper. But uh, I think most importantly, we have to mention that Doug Lyman worked with Jason Harris on the (laughs) film Go, which was his follow up to Swingers. This is true. I was uh, actually, I think it was Miss Hunnity, our old drama teacher, who told me to go down to a casting office and see if I could get cast. And our old friend Jake and I got cast in a wedding scene. He was the groom and I was the best man. And you can see us on screen. I would be unrecognizable, thin and blonde hair. Um, But uh, yeah, but Josh, what's funny about that is we met this guy. I remember his name. His name was Ren, W-R-E-N. And Jake, myself, and Ren, after our uh, night of filming with Doug Lyman, went out to a diner and talked about our Hollywood dreams, man. So (laughs) I don't even think we knew. I mean, I didn't know it was Doug Lyman until a little bit later. I had to, like, put it together. It might have been when I saw the MTV Award. I was like, oh, that guy was the guy who just directed the thing I was, you know, doing, which is really a big story for an extra. I'm really going all out here saying how much I do. You you are very (laughs) visible in that one scene. Like you are very noticeable. Yeah, that's true. So but um, it's kind of fitting that we went out and and had that kind of moment of talking about our aspirations and of acting and whatnot. So Lyman, yeah, I think, but Born Identity, you know, was another one of these movies and Edge of Tomorrow also were like, they caught on more afterwards. Born Identity was huge on, uh, in the video store days and Edge of Tomorrow, obviously a little different with, um, how distribution has changed, but he's in a way that's kind of cool that he makes movies that find their audience later on. Like he's a little ahead of what people are thinking some of the time. And then, yeah, he makes Looper and nobody thinks like they yeah. want that. Not Looper, Jumper. <laughs> don't make sure we, right. we don't want to. Looper's don't awesome. Line. Yeah, Looper is good. Yeah, Jumper's horrible. Doug Lyman has, and, and he's made other bad movies. I can't remember. There was one movie that he made a few years ago that's like about a, 
soldier like trapped behind a wall. And it's one of these like small two character movies where he's just got to like figure out a way to escape someone who's shooting at him. And I can't remember who the star of it is. And I, I feel like I'm, I'm poorly describing this, but it's not good. And, I don't uh, know that one, but he's made some pretty huge blockbusters too, you know? Yes. Yes, he has. And so, I mean, he's, he's had a successful, uh, successfully, he, did he direct uh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith with uh, yeah. Angelina Jolie? That's a fun movie as well. Yeah. And also, uh, you know, the OC, that was, he was oh. very influential in the OC. Him and Mick G. That's like quite yeah. the confluence of 90s directors working Except on that Lyman's show. Except still doing cool <laughs> things, I think. That's true. You yeah, know? He's had a better career overall than Mick G has. And, you know, when we're talking about the ups and downs, he had, this, he had that show Heist, which was like, about the biggest bank robberies ever that was supposed to break out and never went anywhere. But but one show I really liked that he was director and exec producer on was I Just Want My Pants Back on MTV, which only lasted a season and was probably too smart for MTV at the time. Yeah, I don't know that I watched that. But I mean, the other thing about Lyman is he has a reputation of being kind of a monster on set and being difficult to deal with. And there's some movies, even some of his most successful movies, where you read these stories like on Born Identity or on Go, where it's like, oh, there was a producer or a screenwriter who really stepped in and did most of the actual directing. And and I don't know if any of that is really true, um, but he certainly has that kind of a reputation. And you wonder, because his career is so uneven, that I, you have to maybe wonder a little bit about the movies that he made that were good, was it really another creative force who was like behind what was good about that? And you could even say that about Swingers. Like, was it sure. really John Favreau who was the one right. who made this movie good? I, I understand that, but it's a collaborative medium and he has a good track record. I don't, I never really heard that he was a monster. I've definitely heard that he's eccentric and maybe uh, people have to step in to get the work done for him. Sometimes. Yeah, maybe that was an exaggeration, not to say a monster, but that he has a difficult reputation. Did, did you find him difficult to work with on Go, Jason? I mean, Josh, <laughs> what's he going to do to me? I mean, you know, he knows how to treat a star, baby. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. But, you know, look, let's get to the next big thing, which was the swing revival. Yes, right? yes. Th this, this was... The number one cause of the swing revival, I think. <laughs> it makes it sound like it's a commercial for some sort of medication. Like, no, the because number one, we can cure the number one cause of the swing revival. Well, I mean, it was happening in little pockets Big Bad Voodoo Daddy, Cherry Poppin' Daddies, and Squirrel Nut Zippers, Royal Crown Review, which we saw in The Mask, which we talked about. And yeah, I, I think it's amazing that we've talked about two swing revival <laughs> 90s movies on this podcast. Yeah, somehow. the two biggest. But like you said, this made this made Vegas a cool place. This introduced catchphrases like money and stuff like that. It also popularized the term wingman, you know. And oh, really? um, yeah, I had read that. And oh, then okay. the swing revival, for better or worse, was was a highly uh, highly popularized by swingers and people seeing Johnny Favs and Heather Graham dance to Big Bad Voodoo Daddy. That is true. Just you and me and the bottle makes three tonight. Yeah, I remember go, Daddy Go. when I was a freshman in college, we had two big on-campus concerts a year, and one of them was Big Bad Voodoo Daddy. That was and the big deal for us as freshmen at Old Amherst College in yeah. 1998. And not far from there, I remember maybe a year later, I went to Tufts, which was a neighboring college, and their big draws that year, there was a three bill, three, three bills, uh, three headliners, Josh, Sugar Hill Gang, little throwback hip hop, Ben Folds, not with the five anymore, but still playing the jams, 
and the cherry popping daddies Ooh, yeah. with their zoot suit riot. The 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 other big concert uh, on campus my freshman year was was Ben Folds. So <laughs> he was all over the place in the late nineties. I mean, honestly, I think out of all of those, like I kind of like that Squirrel Nut Zipper song that came out, and then I can still listen to Brian Setzer Orchestra, but that's because you know I like. That kind of rockabilly and stray cats. Yeah, well, he had a, he had a career going before this, and that's I think that helped him. Those other bands were really just like they had the tiny little moment. Although I think they're mostly still around. I think the Squirrel Nut Zippers uh, play in Vegas uh, fairly frequently. Yeah, so. I mean, you know, I mean, look, we haven't been out in a while, but. Um, <laughs> and when when we when we finally return to going out again, it will be to see swing revival bands from. No, the hey, you know there's a hotel out here that like you know they have swing dance classes all the time. The Thunderbird Lounge has yeah. it all the time. So, yeah. um, it's not what it was, but I think that's part of why this is so much fun. This movie seeing all that stuff. So yeah, I I think uh, you know the only other shout out we want to give is to Marty and Elaine at the Dresden, the musical act who played there every week those kind of cool bars and um the dresden i think is still there but the derby got bulldozed and turned into a bank so that doesn't tell you about where la is now i don't know what will yeah and two of those soundtracks went gold man so that's 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 pretty much all i got here josh all right well i uh i'm tapped out as well so that is swingers and that is this episode of awesome movie year you can uh, swing on over to our social media accounts. Boom, this guy, huh? Uh, I'm at Jason. He has so money and he doesn't even know it. <laughs> yeah, he's like a big, <laughs> bad bear. He's got these claws. I'm Jason Harris Comedy on Facebook and Twitter. Jay Harris, no, Facebook and Instagram. Jay Harris Comedy on Twitter, where I did tweet John Favreau today to ask him if he ever thought about making a sequel to this movie now. What would these characters look like today? I wonder. I'd probably enjoy it. Josh doesn't like anything. Um, my website, go for Jason. I'm going to say it's 83% right now, but just stick with us, guys. We're getting there. Uh, we're at awesomemovieyear.com, awesome movie pod on Twitter, awesome movie year on Facebook and Instagram. Josh, go. Go. Um, you can find me at joshbellhateseverything.com, Josh Bell hates everything on Facebook and at Signal Bleed on Twitter. And listen to our producer David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. You know what, guys? I usually plug Piecing It Together, but because me and my buddy Q used to watch Swingers all the time before going out every night back in Las Vegas in the early 2000s. I'm going to plug our other podcast, Bird Road, that Q and I do together. It's politics and culture and all kinds of stuff like that. So listen to Bird Road. Were you single then, Dave? Uh, maybe at times. <laughs> were you, were you trying to, I don't remember. Were you trying to get some beautiful babies, Dave? Because I, I don't know that side of you. Possibly. So. Yeah, that side of me is long gone. We've only known the, uh, the settled down domestic version of yeah. Dave. Which is yeah. what I think at mm-hmm. least one of these characters would look like in the sequel that I'm drawing yes. in my mind. That, that you're just now <laughs> writing in your mind? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, Jason, what do we have on our next episode? Hey, Josh. Uh, this is a movie that I know we've both seen before and both really liked, but have maybe not revisited in a long time. I certainly haven't. So I'm excited to see how it holds up. Uh, the 1996 Sundance winner is Welcome to the Dollhouse by Todd Solons. Yeah, that'll be an interesting one to revisit. So tune in next time for Welcome to the Dollhouse. Thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. 
And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. And all points west.